Hey, it's Martine. Before we start today's show, I just want to talk to you about subscriptions. On Post Reports, we bring you stories from across the country and around the world about the big events and urgent issues that are affecting all of our lives. And the work that we do is ambitious. Right now, I'm out on a reporting trip, working on a big story that I'm so excited to share with you. That kind of work is only possible because of the support of listeners like you who subscribe to The Washington Post. If you're not a subscriber yet, now is a great time to start. And if you are, you can gift a Washington Post subscription to someone in your life that could use this kind of valuable reporting. Check out our latest subscription deal at postreports.com offer. The Hearing Loss Association of America and other audiologists and experts will say the average time that it takes somebody to get a hearing aid after they already know they have a hearing loss is about seven years. Wow. Amanda Morris covers disability issues for The Post. She also happens to be hard of hearing. We brought her into the studio because today, a big thing has happened. The Food and Drug Administration has ruled that hearing aids can be purchased over the counter. That means people with mild to moderate hearing loss will no longer need to go to a doctor to get a hearing aid. This is a really big deal because it's really hard to get a hearing aid with the way things have been done in the past. There's a lot of barriers like access and cost, and having hearing aids be sold over the counter allows people to get them without needing to get a prescription or a fitting, and just makes it a lot easier to get one. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Monday, October 17th. Today, hearing aids are now more accessible than ever before. We talk with Amanda about how this news could affect the lives of millions of Americans. And she walks us through the things first-time buyers of hearing aids should know. And later in the show, we'll have an update about asteroids and what people are doing to get the Earth ready to defend itself from a future catastrophe. We're all here this afternoon because for the first time ever, humanity has changed the orbit of a planetary body. But first, bringing it back down to Earth, I talked with Amanda about hearing aids and accessibility. Historically, hearing aids have been a little difficult to get. They're expensive, and you usually have to go to an audiologist, get a hearing test, and do a lot of consulting with the audiologist to get the hearing aid, and you pay a bundled price. So you're paying for both the audiology services and the hearing aid itself. Mild to moderate hearing loss um, is going to be people who might have a little trouble following conversation. For a mild hearing loss, you might not be able to hear like a whisper or like some of those consonants that come up in conversation like cat versus bat, things like that. Um, And a moderate hearing loss would be somebody who, you know, might have a little bit more trouble with quiet conversation. And this ruling basically means that people with that level of hearing loss can go into stores and just buy hearing aids without needing a prescription or a fitting um, in order to get the hearing aid. 
So with this new move for them to be over-the-counter, where can people get them and how much will they cost? So we don't have as much information now on how the market's going to play out. Everybody is sort of waiting to see what happens. But Best Buy has announced that it's opening hundreds of centers around the United States to deal with hearing aids and to help customers find hearing aids. Um, CVS and Walgreens have also said that they will be rolling out over-the-counter hearing aids as well as Walmart. Some of the prices that we're seeing are about $200, which is definitely cheaper. But some of the prices that I'm seeing are closer to $1,000 or $2,000, which is um, more similar to what I would pay for a hearing aid at an audiologist. Can you sort of just like walk us through what some of the obstacles and access issues were? Yes. So I know from personal experience, it can be really difficult to get a new hearing aid just because, you know, you've got to find an audiologist, make an appointment, go to the audiologist, take a hearing test, and then work with the audiologist, and they recommend to you what hearing aids they think you should be wearing. But some audiologists have agreements with certain manufacturers that might make them more likely to try to sell one manufacturer to you versus another. And I don't think I've ever really been presented with more than one or two choices by an audiologist to get a hearing aid. Also, audiology services aren't covered by healthcare a lot of the times. Um, and for a lot of people, that cost of the hearing aid itself and paying for audiology services was a huge barrier. In the last decade or so, we've seen hearing aid use go up. Except if you look specifically at people who live below the poverty line, you've actually seen a decrease in hearing aid use. So even though overall hearing aid use has gone up, that's mostly for wealthier people who can afford it. So in other words, like, there is a great need for hearing aids, and that's being demonstrated through the fact that there's just many more people using it. But for people who can't really afford it and afford the costs that you're talking about, we're not seeing the use there, but it doesn't mean that they don't actually need them. Yeah, and that's because of a lot of barriers of cost, access to, like, healthcare and these services. And, um, you know, there's some element of stigma as well. So I wanted to step back and ask you, can you give us a sense of how many people this change will potentially impact? Can you give us a sense of how prevalent hearing loss is in this country and also just speak to the importance of these devices in people's lives, like how monumental of a change it can be to have one of these devices? So researchers at John Hopkins estimate that about 25 million people over the age of 12 in the United States have a mild hearing loss, and about 12 million have a moderate hearing loss. But not everybody who has a hearing loss knows they have one. Other researchers have estimated that about 26 million Americans have hearing loss, but don't realize it. And that's a really big deal because... When people don't do anything to treat their hearing loss or don't even know they have a hearing loss in the first place, it can lead to some serious impacts. An untreated hearing loss is shown to be correlated to higher risk of dementia, hospitalizations, and falls, among other adverse health effects. Amanda, how did we get to this moment? Why did it take so long for the FDA to make this regulatory move? Like, why is it happening right now? 
So a few decades ago, when regulations were first put in place that people needed to have some sort of prescription or expert to assist them with getting hearing aids, those regulations made sense because hearing aids back then were not digital. They were analog hearing aids and they were really difficult to program and potentially really dangerous if you programmed them incorrectly. Um, And then somewhere along the way, hearing aids became digital as technology got better, which meant that you were able to program them much more easily. You could do it with your phone or your computer. And all of a sudden, it stopped making sense that you necessarily had to have someone else program them for you. And people started to try to push for some of these regulations to be removed because there's always been an issue with hearing aid usage where not everybody who needs a hearing aid gets one. There's a whole population of people who have hearing aids and have never done anything about it. And the thought is that if you remove some of these barriers, you're actually going to potentially encourage more people to get hearing aids, which will be better overall for society and for their health. Yeah. So I see it's sort of a relic of the way the hearing aids used to be. And now that they're more digital and it just took a long time for this to happen. Yes. And part of the reason it took a while for it to happen is that the market became super integrated and some have called it stagnant or stale. It was predominantly controlled by a few manufacturers. A lot of the manufacturers had a lot of integration where they owned the dispensaries or the audiologists had agreements with them to only give out their products. And that made it really hard for other companies to break into the market and sort of stalled innovation. The hope is that by allowing over-the-counter hearing aids to be sold, we can increase competition in this marketplace and make it more responsive to what consumers actually want. I mean, this all sounds really great. More accessibility, potentially the costs will go down. A lot of people who don't have hearing aids could get them. But is there anything that people should be mindful of with this greater accessibility? Audiologists that I talked to did have a few concerns. One concern is that over-the-counter devices might not actually be that much cheaper than prescription devices. If you're getting into a range where they are thousands of dollars, then it's pretty similarly priced to what a prescription hearing aid would be. Um, The other concern is that they may not get as cheap as people need them to be. So one audiologist who specifically works with low-income patients told me that if a hearing aid is $500, that's still not going to be accessible or affordable for some of her patients who can't afford them now. So, you know, some of the hearing aids would need to get drastically cheaper to really change that dynamic. There's also a concern about people programming them incorrectly. It's a lot harder to program a hearing aid than I think it might sound. Audiologists are concerned that if someone programs their hearing aid wrong, they may get really frustrated with the process and just give up. They want this to be a first step for people to go try hearing aids and do something about hearing loss if they have one. What we don't want to see happen is have this be a deterrent for people to say, oh, I hated hearing aids when I tried them. I'm never doing that again because maybe they bought a lower quality product or maybe they didn't 
get it programmed correctly. And is there any other, like, risk to the health of someone if they have programmed it incorrectly? There's a concern that if you have hearing aids that don't modulate and respond to how loud the noise is coming in, then you could over-amplify already loud sounds and potentially damage your hearing. But audiologists said that the risk of damaging your hearing from hearing aids is not that different than the risk of damaging your hearing from music. Yeah, like living your life and just being out in the world. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of people do a lot of things that aren't good for their hearing. So it sounds like if people can, going to an audiologist for professional medical advice on hearing aids should still be an option, still considered. Ideally, over-the-counter hearing aids would have been put into effect along with better healthcare coverage of hearing services, is what experts told me. That was something that was in the Build Back Better Act, but of course never passed. Um, it remains to be seen whether that will change. But if you're feeling unsure about navigating the process and you're not feeling tech savvy, you don't think you could program these yourself, it's definitely not a bad idea to seek some sort of consulting with a professional. Yeah. And what about people who don't want to or can't go to a doctor, but they might think they have mild hearing loss, moderate hearing loss? Is there another way they can find out? Like, are there self-tests they might do? If you can't get a hearing test with an audiologist, you can try to go to like a Costco or a Sam's Club if you have memberships there. Some places like Discount Hearing Health Centers offer free hearing screenings, and they might try to sell you a product afterwards, but at least you got the hearing test done. You can also try going online. Some online tests are better than others. Some are really not that good. Experts recommend looking for a test that's calibrated, meaning that it actually knows how loud the test is for you because mm -hmm. every speaker, every headphone might have different loudness outputs, and they recommend using a pure tone threshold test. A pure tone threshold test sounds like a lot of different beeps at different pitches. So this changes for people with mild to moderate hearing loss. What does mild to moderate hearing loss mean? And can you just walk us through the different types of hearing loss? Within mild and moderate, there can be lots of different types of hearing loss. You might have a high frequency hearing loss like me, where you're fine with lower pitches but at higher pitches, things get a lot more muddled. When someone's talking to me, I have more trouble hearing the consonants like T, S, Z sounds. The following words are from an audiological test that people often have trouble identifying. Chat, death, gin, knock, thin, yearn, puff. That's a pretty common type of hearing loss. You also could have the opposite kind of hearing loss where you can hear high frequencies pretty well, but you can't really hear those lower frequencies. Chat, death, gin, knock, thin, yearn, puff. Those are just two examples. Another common type of hearing loss is a notch hearing loss, and that's been associated with noise-induced damage. 
So somebody who might have been going to a few too many rock concerts. Chat. Death. Gin. Knock. Thin. Yearn. Puff. For that, you might have pretty good hearing at a lot of different levels, but then maybe at one pitch, it just drops off and then goes back up. Okay, so once someone figures out that they need a hearing aid, what are the next choices they have to make? Are there different types of hearing aids that are better for certain things? There are so many choices when you're trying to get a hearing aid. There's like over 70 manufacturers. Wow, this feels overwhelming, first of all. (laughs) It is a little overwhelming. I think I would be overwhelmed if I was trying to do this without some sort of recommendation. So there's three like major types of hearing aids, I would say. One is behind the ear, which is a traditional hearing aid um, where you have a part behind your ear and a part in your ear. It's easier to handle. Uh, It's usually a little bit more resistant to breaking because it doesn't have to deal with wax buildup as much. And um, it's good for more significant hearing loss. There's also in the ear, which is less visible. And it's pretty good for people who might be worried about the stigma of hearing aids and might not want them to be as visible. But they can also create an occlusion effect, which is where you plug up your ear and it kind of makes you feel like your own voice is echoing back to you. And then finally, there's an in-the-canal hearing aid, which is nearly invisible from somebody looking at you from the outside. It's, It's very discreet. It might be really good if you're outside in the rain a lot, but they're really small and hard to handle. But the good thing is because they're further in your ear, that effect of your voice echoing is actually reduced. Some other things people might want to look for in terms of feature. First of all, when you're going to actually buy something, everybody told me, look and see what the return policy is. Check what the warranty is. Because... You might get something and realize you don't like it. Um, It can take a couple weeks to figure out whether or not a hearing aid is good for you. Uh, I usually try to wear mine for about two, three weeks before I decide. And hearing aids can break if you get them wet, if there's too much earwax, if you drop them, stuff like that. You know, hopefully they don't break so easily, but if they do break, you might want to know what the warranty is and what sort of repairs you might be able to get um, because it might be an expensive purchase. And then in terms of features itself, my hearing aids um, have both of these and they can be helpful for people with more significant hearing loss, like maybe more on the moderate side of things. One is that they have directional microphones. So if I'm in a noisy environment, it will focus all of my hearing on whatever is in front of me. So it tries to point the microphone where they think the most important sound is coming from. The other feature is filtering of background noise. So again, if I'm in a noisy environment, it will look at everything that's not human speech and try to reduce the volume of that a little bit so that anybody who's speaking will be more clear to me. Two other big things you might want to look at. um, One is customization. If a hearing aid doesn't fit you well, and it doesn't respond to your unique type of hearing loss, experts ask, what's what's the point? You know, like, 
If it it's like, as if you're not even wearing it. It just won't help you as much. The other thing is that you want to make sure you're looking for a reputable manufacturer or brand. Um, one way you can check to see if a device is following FDA regulations is to look at the federal registry of these devices. Um, the other thing that you can keep in mind is that bigger companies might be less likely to go out of business and might be able to offer more services and repairs. Amanda, as a disability reporter, what will you be looking for and monitoring as hearing aids go over the counter? I'm really curious to see exactly what comes out. The fact that it took so long to get this and the fact that hearing healthcare is still not covered by insurance, I think shows that hearing has been this ignored part of health for a while. Um, it's interesting because a lot of companies do offer dental and vision plans, but not hearing plans. And I think it's because hearing tends to be this sort of invisible problem where, you know, if you can't hear, you might just try to ignore it and work around it. Um, in terms of other disabilities, I think it really depends on what kind of disability you have. I think some disabilities get maybe more attention, more insurance coverage than others, but many who have disabilities have a lot of issues with access to the care they need, access to the medical devices they need. For a long time, this has just felt like another one of those, yep, you have a disability, good luck. Mm. Yeah. It's like, it's another one of those examples of how a lot of the burden of disability is placed on the person with a disability to fix it themselves. Rather than the rest of society and its institutions to support someone. Yeah. Amanda, we're so fortunate to have you monitoring this for, for the sake of all of us to, to look out for all of that. And I did want to ask you, you know, with this change, with hearing aids going over the counter, presumably, hopefully, greater accessibility, do you think that signals anything for the future of other disability aids and how ubiquitous or accessible they might become. This took a lot of time and a lot of lobbying. And hearing affects so many people. I think it might depend on how many people are affected by a certain disability, unfortunately, for it to really get legislators' attentions. I also think perhaps the fact that Apple, for example, was coming out with Earpods that could be adjusted for your hearing. And there's been a lot of places where companies have signaled a willingness to potentially move into this marketplace. Potentially that helped push this over the line, but it was years. So... Will it help with other types of disabilities and other types of medical devices that people have trouble covering? It's hard to say. Well, thank you, Amanda, so much for your reporting and diligence on this issue and, and for joining us. Thank you. Amanda Morris is a disability reporter for The Post. You can find a link to Amanda's guide on buying hearing aids in our show notes. This story was produced by Ariel Plotnick. 
And just a reminder for our readers and listeners who might be hard of hearing, we publish transcripts of our episodes on our website. You can visit postreports.com for that. Usually, they publish within a day. After the break, NASA tackles the question, if an asteroid is heading straight for Earth, can we do anything about it? We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. And one more thing before we go about a test, a test of Earth's planetary defense. This is the RMSC and DTMOG, five minutes till impact, five minutes till impact. Could humanity take aim at an asteroid seven million miles away and knock it off its course? And we're now dropping the clock and we'll go by loss of signal to confirm impact. I should say again, this was a test. There wasn't actually an asteroid heading for Earth. <laughs> Signal. But proving that we could do something like this has been important to scientists. Because there could be a time when an asteroid is directly heading for us. And this might be a way to stop it. Now just seeing dimorphous. Scientists were hopeful this would work. They already named the asteroid dimorphos, meaning have two forms. One as it was in space, another presumably after humans took aim. This is remarkable stuff. On September 26, NASA live-streamed images from a satellite the size of a refrigerator as it hurled towards dimorphos. The satellite was traveling at 14,000 miles per hour, and its job, to knock Dimorphos off its path. Looks like control system settling down. Angular rates look really good. I think we're going to get the investigation team some good pictures. And those images from the satellite wow. showed it getting closer oh my oh, wow. and closer to Dimorphos. Oh, my goodness. Eight, yeah. seven, oh, six, wow. Five, four, and then... the signal cut out as the satellite collided with the asteroid. Oh, my gosh. <gasps> and sorry for the pun, the test was a smashing success. And we have and impact. We have <laughs> for humanity in the name of planetary defense. Scientists in the control room are hugging. Oh, fantastic. Bill Nye is there, taking oh. selfies with beaming engineers. What a moment. Very few words can really capture this moment. This is And beautiful. Nancy, do you have anything you'd like to say to the teams who made tonight possible? The live feed cuts to Nancy Chabot, oh, I mean, I don't need to say the program coordination like lead for like DART. That stands for Double Asteroid Redirection Test, and she's one of the people overseeing all of this. Nancy starts naming 
all the collaborators who made this moment possible, and she gets overwhelmed. Um, I know I'm, a, I'm really honored to be on this team, and I know other people on the team feel the same way. I mean, DART really is just the start. It's just the first planetary defense test mission. It was spectacular, and it's accomplished, and we'll figure out how effective it was. That's really what we're going to learn in the next weeks to come. Two weeks later, telescopes around the world measured how dimorphous changed. We've been imagining this for years, and to have it finally be real is, is really quite a thrill. This is Tom Statler, a DART program scientist. This is really just the start. It really is just the beginning. The telescopes picked up debris ejected into space. Webb and Hubble telescopes brought us a stunning sight. A long trail of debris that looks like a comet's tail. The team's going to be working to understand in detail the new orbit. But we should not be too eager to say one test on one asteroid tells us exactly how every other asteroid would behave in a similar situation. There are a lot of different types of asteroids. Asteroids can be hard, solid bodies with iron cores. They can be loose rubble. They can be just a couple dozen feet wide or hundreds of miles wide. But an asteroid doesn't even have to be that big to be catastrophic. The asteroid that did in the dinosaurs was about six to nine miles wide. An average of 30 near-Earth asteroids are discovered each week. These are ones that cross within 28 million miles of Earth. NASA's near-Earth observation program uses telescopes in Hawaii, Arizona, Massachusetts, and in space to detect objects far away potentially giving us time to nudge them off course. So often we dwell on the ways in which we are destroying the planet and putting our future at risk. And yet, here's one small sign that it's actually possible for humans to come together to cooperate and maybe one day save the planet from disaster. This story was produced by Bishop San, who also wrote original music for this segment. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores and Maggie Penman. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.